0: And it's something that Brad Bird talks about a lot is when you, if you think you're the best at whatever and everyone's there to serve you, you're only going to get a product that is going to be this good. For many of us,
1: as a kid, thumbing through a comic book could transport us to other worlds, flying through the universe at the speed of light, watching immortal enemies battling to the death, And some of us never grew out of it. Welcome to the Under the Mask Podcast, where we discuss the super process behind superheroes. Not just superheroes, aliens, horror thrillers. If you can find it on a comics page, you can find it here. Here, you'll learn how to make comics. From the initial outlines, scripts, and artwork, to printing and putting the final book in a bag and board. For many years, Bill Cologne has written his book, Kinetic, and sold thousands of copies across the nation. And now we're inviting you along for an inside look to the comics process. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you're in the right place this is the under the mask podcast and this
2: is bill cologne under the mask podcast episode 11 i'm following up my first double digit podcast with my first ever international guest let's take a quick hop across the pond to england My guest this week is a former visual effects artist, and he's worked on some Hollywood blockbusters. You may have heard of them. Movies like Alien vs. Predator, Batman Begins, and even Harry Potter. Since then, he made his own comic, Digitopia, which is live on Kickstarter. Be sure to check out his Kickstarter by clicking on the link in the show notes below or checking out his direct site, comic.digitopiafilm.com. Let's give a warm welcome to Farhan Qureshi. Farhan, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Bill. It's uh, great to be on your show. So go ahead and uh, tell us about
0: your story and how you got to be here. Yeah. So um, I've uh, been writing Digitopia probably about two years ago. It's my first comic book I wrote. Previous to writing comic books, I worked in film and um, as a screenwriter as well as CGI artist. So I was really used to writing screenplay format. I then uh, went on to write theatre plays and uh, direct theatre and uh, game cinematics. And um, coming into comic books for the first time was... uh, I made the shift about four three and a half years ago four years ago possibly and it's a completely different way to look at writing I wrote Digitope so I literally started from zero I've never read uh, never written a comic before to figuring out how to work with artists figuring out everything from literally putting a comic online using WordPress plugins to launching to Amazon launching on Kickstarter and over the two two and a half three years I've actually launched two successful Kickstarter campaigns I had about uh, 200 people come through the Kickstarters launched on Amazon on Kindle and um, yeah I'm pleased to say I actually hit number one on my book launch uh, hit the number one spot on Amazon in the comics book category so um, that was a big rush I am still going strong well hopefully I'm going strong <laughs> working on issue two of Digitopia and um, Digitopia essentially it's, a, it's kind of like a pre-apocalyptic comic book action adventure book about a father and daughter just trying to get to safety in a world that's kind of a society that's imploding upon on itself. If you think um, The Matrix meets Mad Max is the best way i describe it. Uh, pure adrenaline but behind the action I actually wanted to go a bit further into the story and find out what drives the story what drives society to behave the way it behaves, what drives how governments and media can collude together or even against each other to really push forward, sometimes in this particular story, to cronian measures against certain groups of people and try to mimic what's happening in the real world about some of us see, some of us don't see. Some of us see, choose not to see, um, and what the effects actually are on a real father-daughter relationship. So always try to bring it home to to the individual, which um, was first *Digitopia* story, and it's continuing in the sequel. But before *Digitopia*, you had said
2: you were a screenwriter and uh, also uh, worked in film. Uh, any projects
0: yeah. that we would know about? Uh, yeah, we well, may probably know a couple of these. I worked on uh, *Harry Potter* three, *Harry Potter* four, *Harry Potter* five. I worked on *Alien* versus *Predator*, particularly highlight that was <laughs> I worked on Poseidon I worked on the Pirates movie uh, Riddick movie Magic Flute and um, on Batman Begins in fact so I was really lucky to work with some really 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 amazing visionary filmmakers I had people like Christopher Nolan looking at my work I had um, Corpse Bride Tim Burton looking at my work and Ridley Scott actually was at <laughs> my work on my desk and he would draw his Ridley trams which we weren't supposed to take away with us but I Oh, might have, one of them might have found its way home with me. So yeah, I worked on, on these films with these directors and filmmakers, and just I was like a sponge. I was just listen. We'd be sitting up in um, post-production houses in the middle of London, talking about bats and how CG bats. So what, what, what's the motivation for Bruce Wayne? One of the most interesting stories I have on that is a bit of an inside scoop for you. On uh, Batman Begins, I did the um, animation of the CG bats coming around Bruce Wayne when he discovers his true destiny to become Batman we'd worked on the sequence for months to get it exactly right. And literally on a Thursday night, a delivery was on a Monday because it was put their deliveries on a Monday to squeeze that final weekend out of you. But um, on a Thursday night, I think the director had a, an epiphany that actually I want Bruce Wayne to be surrounded by a tornado of bats. So um, that was my Friday, Saturday, Sunday and Monday taking away three months worth of work off there, creating bats streaming in perfect lines and streams to creating a tornado of bats over um, three days. So that's pretty intense. That shot actually was uh, shortlisted for an Oscar nomination that yeah, So I've got the I've got the picture in um, uh, Cine Cinefix magazine, which says for your consideration, Best VFX Oscar, and it's got my shot of uh, the bats
2: encompassing Bruce Wayne. You know, that's funny. As I was doing the research uh, before the, deal, I just popped in a quick Google search on you, and first thing that popped up was Alien versus Predator. It was a
0: revelation to me to realize that putting the interview together. Yeah, no, Alien versus Predator. Well, What was interesting from going from Harry Potter, which my kids are watching Harry Potter now all the time. They're downstairs watching Harry Potter right now. And they, I always like to keep on watching it till the end so they can see my name. They seldom stick around for the end credits. But um, going from Harry Potter, which is really, really precise, the, um, it was just an um, incredible experience. On the first day of the shoot, um, the director of um, the animation director basically said, look, we've all finished Harry Potter. We're not making one piece here. Just go and have loads of fun on this movie, uh, which we did. It was completely different
2: to working on a Harry Potter movie. I could imagine. I want to come back to your time in movies uh, in a little bit. uh, But right now, just uh, tell us a little more about Digitopia.
0: Yeah, so Digitopia, I actually wrote it many, many years ago, um, believe it or not, in 2012. And I wrote it as a screenplay back in 2012. Uh, that was around the same time I became a dad. So um, <laughs> screenwriting and writing books and stuff took a back seat for several years. The book is kind of like, I kind of wanted to make uh, a comic book that I hadn't really seen or wasn't seeing being made from a different perspective to, to your your um superhero type books where you have people flying around laser beams and capes and all kinds of amazing fantastical stuff and about 2012 was also a time lord of the rings was a big thing so i i, I was kind of seeing two sets two types of movies your are your superhero movies and your fantasy type movies of wizards and orcs. I didn't really feel... I mean, I I absolutely 100% respect both of those types of genres. But me personally, I grew up... Um, I shouldn't have been watching Mad Max when I was a kid. But um, I was growing up looking at those kinds of movies... Mad Max, of barbarian movies. And I always felt like, for me, I wanted to make something that was so visceral, was so primal in nature. And it wasn't until many years later that I think what I found so compelling about those stories is the breakdown of society. And we're never that far away. I was working with a guy at a web company, a Norwegian guy, and um, he told me, he's in, I don't know, he heard it from his grandfather or somewhere, that Society is only ever two meals away from completely breaking down. And I thought, "Mm, okay, well, I'm not sure about that. But around the same time we had um, fuel protests um, in the UK, across Europe, I think, Uh, fuel wasn't coming in. Fuel driver, uh, lorry drivers are blocking roads and there were fuel shortages in um, forecalls. And people were going mad, they were losing their mind. mind. And I literally, the the petrol station is 150 metres from my house. And it took me almost 40 minutes to get in there. And when I got in there, people literally fighting over it. And I thought to myself, you know what, my Norwegian friend was actually right. We 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 haven't had even missed one meal. We've just had a bit of fuel. We're gonna be low on fuel for a little while, and people are turning on each other. And we, you know, this isn't um kind of I wouldn't say it's urban South London where I live, but um it's okay. It's a nice enough area, but people turning to each other, people siphoning fuel from other people's cars. And I decided I would be a good idea to watch Mad Max again, which <laughs> <laughs> probably wasn't the best time to rewatch it. But those are the kind of stories that I really strike a chord with me. And I find it far more scary to to see those kind of things where society was okay on Monday, but broke down on a Thursday or Friday and how people can turn on each other. And that's really what I wanted to get into and explore those themes and create a comic book that wasn't superheroes, that wasn't wizards and orcs, but actually was really, really primal in its base nature. I think the
2: closest thing that I can equivalent with that is uh, right now in uh, 2020 with coronavirus, uh, there was a run, obviously, on toilet paper and canned meats, flour, all the cooking ingredients.
0: Yeah, no, just to be clear, the fuel truck I'm talking about was post Y2K, not in the 70s. I I wasn't born then either. What was your original inspiration for Digitopia? I watched Mad Max, the original Mad Max movie, when I was probably eight or nine. <laughs> and it scared me, uh, Sorry, I, can't, I don't know what your policy on uh, using expletives is. But it scared me um, the hell out of me, shall we say. No, it, it really scared me so much that I couldn't sleep for a while. Anytime I saw a biker going on a bike. I'd almost get freaked out as a kid, which at the time then, the best thing to do was to watch the second Man Max movie <laughs> when I was like 11 or 12. And then those movies, they kind of did stick with me. And I watched a movie called, I think it's a TV show we had here, or a movie, it's called The Day After. And essentially it was the day after the atomic bomb dropped and how society was wiped out. And there's one scene in there where a group of people who were neighbours all had to go into one person's house and the food... The provisions pretty much went within a day or two, and there was nothing left. And one of all they had was an apple. And his neighbour offered him an apple, and the guy just broke down, told him to get out and go off into the nuclear fallout outside. So stories like that really hit me. And in the news, I remember there was—I think the Soviet Union was breaking up or into into its constituent parts, and they were had like four hundred percent inflation in the shops and people literally fighting over loaves of bread and there weren't any loaves of bread. And you'd look at that and you think to yourself, oh, this will never happen here. <laughs> We're perfectly safe. I mean, Mad Max was set out in, in Australia with stuff happening in Russia. But we kind of feel like cocooned. And it always, I always thought to ask myself, what would it happen if it happened in the West, in the UK or in the US even, thinking we're kind of like insulated from that. And those kind of stories just kept me thinking and wondering and pondering uh, what would happen if our society started to break down. Um, I mean, I don't think we, you know, we've had coronavirus, we had a little fuel, a mini fuel crisis post Y2K. I guess Y2K was probably when I was just finishing up uh, university was probably the big panic thing that I saw and in terms of people wondering what's going to happen will planes start falling out of the sky. Will infrastructure just break down because of this? And I guess that's really kind of those influences have made me want to just explore. I guess the, the other thing that's really driven me behind Digitopia is the media and how the media can portray things which kind of fits into their agenda and if you don't happen to fit the demographic that fit into the media's agenda you will be on the receiving end I mean you can tell I'm I'm perhaps fit into one of those demographic groups which uh, isn't kind of like media favourites. kind of like I kind of feel like we've been the boogeyman for a while of the media you know for your readers who who may not know I'm I'm from uh, my parents came over from Pakistan uh, to the UK in the 70s I'm kind of like Asian colored, um, Asian in the UK's term means like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. I know, I know in the US it has a, another definition. Being darker skinned, being from a Muslim background, from a Pakistani background, we rarely get the short end of a stick from the media in this country. And I, I can imagine it's perhaps similar or worse to some degree in, in different countries, perhaps in the US. Anytime I would see anything that, say, one terrorist does something, all Muslims are terrorists, across all media. It's like I felt to myself, well, you know what? There's so many of us who do work in hospitals, pharmacies, and doctors. We don't ever get painted on the front page of a newspaper and CNN saying this guy saved someone's life. This guy um, uh, carried someone uh, someone's wheelchair to an ambulance. Um, and I always just felt to myself, it's kind of like amplified so much and nowadays to such a degree i'm slightly concerned for what's coming next for our kids and our future generations. so i wanted to create a book i really just tackled it head on and that was something else but i wasn't seeing so much in mainstream comic books or movies because why would i why would you <laughs> you know what i mean so i wanted to just write from that angle about society breaking down and how the media can use that to turn people against each other to kind of of offset group A against group B, depending upon which one fits their agenda better. That I put into the first um, issue of uh, Digitopia 1.0. One of the characters in the book is actually a a journalist, a, a broadcast journalist, and She's very much bought into the new Digitopian government's agenda to keep certain people out of their their land. So whilst people are fighting over resources and the governments are trying to control people, the tool that they use, and I think the tool that governments today, and, and if there's a parallel between today, any country, it's purely coincidental, obviously. I wanted to examine how the media, especially a media that claims to be a free media (in inverted commas), can actually push forward a narrative that feeds an agenda and kind of whoever winners and whoever losers. Because there's always winners and losers um, in these scenarios, and the winners on the whole in this book tend to be super rich or super powerful, and the losers tend to to um, be the ones who who just really can never win. So in the in the book, Jay, who's the father, and Libra is daughter jane lee not only fighting against all the people who think they're terrorists and trying to keep them out of digitopia they're fighting against the army but they're also fighting against the media as well in that um i don't want to give any spoilers away but any there's, there's parts in the book where the media find them photograph them put them on news channels and what they were doing is distorted because it doesn't fit the media's uh narrative so Jay finds himself in a position where Jay and Lee are being hunted down in the book for not really having done, I'm trying to do it without giving away any spoilers, kind of like thinking about that premise of whenever you, even if you did something good, it would never be shown. It's kind of like that, that old saying that all all successes are private and all failures are public. Those have been the things that have influenced Digitopia the most.
2: And it certainly does seem when you turn on the news, you're going to hear about the shooting that happens. It seems like negativity sells
0: more than positivity. Yeah, I mean, I read a film, one of the screenplays I did write previous to Digitopia was a a short film called Sensational, and it was all about the sensationalism of media and um, how media really thrives, what drives media, what drives the budgets is advertising. I did a job perhaps four years ago where we actually sold advertising on websites and in newsletters. And uh, from doing that job, and I saw the amounts of money that were being exchanged or advertising on on print on web in email I think that really hit home for me that you better be writing something that pulls people in whether it's true or not true that's a slight side issue the thing is people buy the thing people consume the media um, and unfortunately bad news scaring people sells copy good news rational talking if you've got option A which is good news and rational talking or option B which is scaring people you you can tell what which one's going to get more eyeballs looking at it. And the, the eyeball just drives the advertising revenue. So that, that I actually do reference directly in, in the book. It's on page uh, page 10 and 11, if uh, <laughs> if anyone's there uh, reading it. But um I, I directly really talk about that correlation between news and selling, scaring people is driving the economy within uh, Digitopia. So
2: when you pick up Digitopia on Kickstarter, uh, when your reward ships to you, you flip to page 10, 11, you'll see what he's talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Farhan, uh, go ahead and tell us
0: about your writing process. Gosh. So um, what I have tended to do is I've written and rewritten. There's this funny movie, um, Throw Mama from a Train, where uh, Billy Crystal, he's uh, the actor in it. And he, he's teaching a writing class. And um, he says writing is rewriting. So I've done lots of writing courses. I've studied um, at film school, read about five, six, seven books on writing. So I kind of do believe that you just got to get it out on the page at, at bullet point. Thumbnails, whatever. Just get out what you think the narrative is. So behind me, I've got this big uh, double bold out magnetic whiteboard. I just draw on it, really. I draw like squares and shapes and lines and kind of just mind map it out from there. From that point, I will perhaps potentially I'll turn it to. I used to turn it into little uh, four by six cards where you just write descriptions, just pin them to my board and move them around. I don't tend to do that so much because, uh, you know, you can do that digitally by just moving cells around. It doesn't sound very exciting and it sounds terrible uh, to, to move cells around in an Excel, but it's really efficient. <laughs> you you can quickly just um, create another column and move stuff around like with your main thing that happens in a scene and two or three lines of description. And one of the writing tips that I got was on your cards, you write the type, you write the like the header, what's happening in the scene, brief description, but then at the bottom, you write, how does this card, how does this element of story drive the story forward? Because if, if, if it doesn't drive the story forward it's just in there for, for fun or for vanity if it if, if it's not actually doing anything so then with that I can see this if I didn't have this particular card it wouldn't have driven these three or four cards forward I also do a thing around character arcs because it's more than just about plotting it's more about how is this character changing how is this character developing so I'll write a lot about the characters what I also do is I get, gather loads of visual references for the characters what does this character look like troll the internet trawl through movies and books and stuff and think about, I like this element of this character and I like that element of that character. Why do I like this element of this character? What is it that is actually driving that character forward? And I'll start to form my characters based on those. So it's not just good guys versus bad guys. It's people who have a particular point of view on life, A, and people who have a particular point of view on life, B, and their values just happen to kind of be in conflict with one another they both want the same thing. They just believe in different ways about going about it. So hopefully, you know, people who read the book will see it's not a flat book. It's not a single dimensional; It's multi-dimensional. There's a lot of differential motivations, you know, colliding against each other, civilizations clashing. Um, when I've done all of that and I've written eight or nine drafts, I always do. I don't know why I always land on eight. I always land on like eight drafts um, because I I, I I, think that it's a concept of diminishing returns. I've taken it as far as I. I can go in eight drafts, then I'll get a, an editor in and I'll get a professional comic book editor in who's worked on the past uh, two books with me. I've always worked with editors because my view is for eight drafts, I've taken as far as I can go An editor come at it, really just look at it objectively and tell me what's not working here. You know, I, I don't need them to tell me how great it is. I need you to tell me what isn't working, how can I fix it? And that value, I know there's lots of threads in various groups about editors and their value, but for me, editors are, it's a smart, it's a smart investment. Uh, an editor is literally, I, you know, I have no exaggeration, done my best work, given it to an editor and they made it twice as good in one iteration, which I couldn't have got to an it iter- from eight to nine. I I'd have made it 2% better. I may have moved the odd comma or apostrophe around whatever but they come and they, they take that story apart and they ask me really difficult questions why is this happening, this character? And and also they they come up with great suggestions in different ways that I couldn't have thought of because emotionally I've invested too much, emotionally I'm exhausted, uh, physically I'm exhausted, and you get to a point where you just want to finish. But giving it to an editor, taking a break from it, and actually paying a professional editor to change it for you. They don't actually change it for me, by the way. I have to rewrite it, but at least I know what I'm rewriting that I know from draft eight to draft nine is pretty much going to be... What forms the basis of the book?
2: When I was starting out uh, writing Kinetic and originally uh, it ended up volume one ended up being eight issues. But originally I'd written it as a trilogy. I'd written it as three issues. Issue one was basically what issue one was. And then the fir- original issue two ended up being somewhere around five or six. And then the original issue three was like the final issue, the issue eight hiring an editor who looked it over and the first thing just saying dude this moves way too fast Mm -hmm. I didn't see that right I was like man I've got this perfect trilogy here we're able to move into it and he's just like man it moves way too fast and he's like I know you don't want to hear that but it made me go back I had to write in what was going to be a prologue and kind of a spin-off series and I wrote that in to be issues two three and four and then uh, just let it breathe a little and it was Mm -hmm. funny because at the time I remember being so angry at the editor so easy to say that it moves fast and to produce more issues when you're not putting up the money at the end of the day that made kinetic work because if I had released it how I originally wanted to release it it wouldn't have worked
0: yeah I mean I I think most people me included there's actually a fear aspect about working with an editor because they're going to tell you stuff you don't want to hear but what I would rather do is I'd rather hear it from the editor in a one-to-one email or conversation on Skype than I'd hear it from Amazon (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> um, once, once it's out of it, if it's, like you said, moving too fast, I do not need people putting reviews up saying this book move, move, moves far too fast. I'd rather get that bit of pill swallowed earlier and just change it while I can. I also do think what I um, actually I should say what I missed a step before the editor. I'll give it to readers, people who I trust, people who, who are quite well read on these th- subjects. And I'll give it to them first. So that's actually how I get from draft seven to draft eight by doing very reviews. And I, I do them one at a time as well. So um, when I've done one person's review, I'll give it to person B who will uh, tear it to pieces. Then I'll give it to the editor, an actual professional. So, yeah, it, 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 it is hard to get other people's feedback. And you don't always get to hear what you want to hear. It extends that timeline line out by two or three months when you've worked so hard to get it done for like May. And then you give it to readers and by the time the editor gets it back, you're looking at September almost. and You're like, oh, I'm so frustrated. But, um, you know, actually the payoff comes five, six months after that when you put something out in the world and you get reviews, uh, especially when you get five-star reviews and people like genuinely writes, people have written to me, they've sent me emails. I don't know how they've got my email address, (laughs) but you know, it's, (laughs) they they write to me and they write these really, really nice emails. And perhaps they, they, you know, you can never get too many of them, obviously, but when you do get them, you actually forget all of the hard work, all of the toil, all of the, Anguish that went into this when you read those those uh, nice emails back and the re- reviews as well. Totally
2: agree with that. There's nothing I love more than going and doing a convention and having someone come up and say, "Hey, I've re- I already picked up your books. I read them. I really like them." okay so you've got that eighth draft you have the you have the eighth draft, the ninth draft you've sent it off to the editor, you've done everything. Uh, how did you find your
0: artist? So yeah I write these long long application they're not applica- the application form itself is quite short in all fairness but I give a lot of detail about the book. I'll give a lot of context about what the book is about and make it clear that I'm looking for someone for whom this material resonates with I'm looking for someone who believes in these same core values that i'm writing about and what i i put previous uh, imagery of a book sort of previous copy of a book i'll put little script access i'll put reference art i'll say this is the look i'm going for these are the, the um, characters these are the environments then i'll put a little application form and in the application form uh, it'll be like a little google i've actually switched to google form after having spent So much time creating a WordPress based form, which required me to go into the back end of my uh, web DNS and install different plugins to receive responses. But anyway, I've moved to Google Forms now, which does all the work for me in, in that regard. But then the questions I'll ask in the Google Form is I want to know who are your favorite artists? I want to know what is your favourite book I want to know what is your favourite movie I want to know things that inspire inspire you, I want to know what you do outside of making comic books because it's important for me to work with the right people but it's also important that if a person can't be bothered to answer five questions about themselves if that's too much work for them, I'm going to filter them out straight away. So when I put my, my job, when I put these application forms out, I don't get a hundred replies, I'll get between eight to a dozen but I know there's people who come through they really really want this and they really care about this and then the hard work then begins to actually choose one of the the short list and for Digitopia 2.0 it was a tough decision and um, I really really thought about it I made spreadsheets listing each artist showing their work studying it studying their ink work and then one of the things I asked is would you be willing to provide one page or half a page or some concept art or something based upon this? Um, I unfortunately can't pay you to do that, but people would do it because they wanted to to kind of express what what they were reading. I'm not saying what I've written is so amazing, but they were reading something a bit, something different to the normal job specs that they would get or comic book specs they would get if they wanted to do it. Which makes the decision even harder now because I've got three or four people who have sent me stuff, like and I can only choose one of them. I'm really lucky. On issue one of Digitopia, I worked with uh, the colorist on that book, Simon Robbins. He was a real, real um, godsend to me. In fact, he is now kind of like we're kind of art directing it together. So I'd go to Simon and say, okay, so Simon, these are from the eight, it's come down to four. From the four, it's come down to three. I can't choose. I think they're all great. And, and, and I'd also do this, I'd do interviews with them. And the interviews could last anywhere between half an hour to an hour. I'd talk about the project, make sure, ask them if what resonated the most with the writing I sent them. And, and, they'd talk, and we'd have a real discussion because it's not just, when I was a CG artist, we used a software called Maya, uh, which is a 3D tool. And there are two types types of artists that producers wanted there was the artist who could think and do something and contribute ideas and then there was the Maya monkey who just knew how to use Maya and could make anything at, at any speed and I never wanted to have someone just do stuff at breakneck speed like if I wrote something and they just do it I want them to contribute I want them to contradict me I want them to tell me I'm wrong and um, really please, the artists who I worked with I, I, I'm not precious about it I'm not precious about you telling me this isn't working or I I think there's a better way. I want you to tell me there's a better way. And it comes down to this maxim that I learned when I, when I was a CG artist. I used to watch a lot of Pixar. I still do. But I used to watch a lot of making off Pixar. And um, there's this amazing video, it's called Pixar Human History, where Ed Catmull and John Stanton, Brad Bird, etc. they have a panel of them. And what they talk about is um, when Ed Catmull started up Pixar, he hired people who were better than him, and he continuously hired people who were better than him. And there's something that Brad Bird talks about a lot is when you if you think you're the best at whatever and everyone's there to serve you. You're only going to get a product that is going to be this good. When you say to people, you say to artists, uh, I want you to take what I, this is the best that I can do. I'm trusting you, guys because I've interviewed you. We've talked at length, we've talked at depth. You've got the concept. You really understand it. You're bought into it. I don't want you to just draw what I've written. I want you to make it better. And um, or what I do on my on my blog, um, comic.digitopia.film.com, is below every page of the webcomic, I'll put a making-off. And at the bottom of making-off will be the original script, the layouts, and the final inks. And you can see that. Wait a second. There were like six panels in this original script. In the layout, there's four. In the final inks, there's five. So things change. And you have to be open to change. And the only way you can do that is to work with people who... A are better than you but B that you empower them you you empower them to say this is a collaboration okay one of those odd collaborations where they get paid and I don't but still it's a collaboration nonetheless but it's like this is going to have your name on it it's going to have the the artist's name on it it's going to have the colorist's name on it it's going to have the writer's name on it the editor's name on it and I want to work with people who've got that much about themselves that if this book has my name on it it better be the best damn book that I could make so that's really how I choose how I work with artists is A, they've got to care about the project, care about the subject matter and the two artists, Tom Hoskinson and Simon Robbins who are working on issue too. It's not often I say this and I'm not being arrogant here but I don't often find people who can outwork me. But these guys can. These guys outwork me. They're based in Australia, both of them actually in Australia, one on the east side the coast and one on the west coast so they're two hours apart. But I'll be typing something at what I would consider quite late UK time and I'll get a reply and <laughs> What time is it for you guys? Why are you still working at this time? You know, I'm shattered. I'm exhausted. I'm I'm ready for bed. They have gotten up early in the morning or they have stayed awake throughout the night. And when I mean early in the morning, I don't mean 6 a.m. I'm talking earlier than that. And we're having real-time conversations and they're asking me questions. I just want to go to sleep. My eyes are going. (laughs) I'm about to drop, but I can't because it's the start of their day. It's the end of my day. It's the start of their day. So um, finding people who, empowering them and, if they can outwork you, you're lucky. And I i feel really lucky to work with the team that I'm working with in that. I, they, they really feel the material as much as I do. Uh, they work harder than me which is great because I'm not claiming I work super hard but I would say I work very, very, very hard <laughs> at this and I found people who, who are who can outdo me which is amazing and, and another thing that I learned from Pixar was and this is something I tell all my artists my day job is in the creative industries as well so I work with artists in my day job is at Pixar Bradbury talked about artists are really precious and they don't want to show you their work in progress because it's not great it's not polished it's not brilliant and they're really reluctant to do it and what he said was in pixar is you've all got to get over this you've got to get over the fact that you're going to show me something that isn't perfect because you're worried that i'm going to judge you i'm not going to judge you we're going to get to the answers faster if you if we can get through ideas quicker and it's really hard to work with artists because they want to always show their best they don't want to show you substandard work but i i really I, you know i know you're good You would not be on this project if you were not really, really good. So if you can only spend... 15 minutes on something and it hasn't hit your high standards, but let's talk about, let's see if this is working rather than you spending four and a half hours doing something and uh, us having that conversation afterwards. So that's another thing I do. Hopefully uh, um, if, if my artists are interviewed, they might feedback well on that point that I tried to put in. Something that
2: you said resonated with me reading uh, Brian Michael Bendis's words for pictures. Uh, mm-hmm. He says to all his artists, uh, usually he'll send out almost like a cover letter before they get started. And just says, hey, look, you are not my art monkey. You know, you're mm. a collaborator on this. Uh, so that just really resonated with me. Uh, I wanted to touch on something. And remember, uh, I said we'd be coming back to uh, your work in film. How did working in film teach you about making
0: Digitopia and storytelling? Oh, massively. I actually, I, when I wrote Digitopia initially as a screenplay, it was um, literally we finished a screenplay and we were going for funding. To fund a movie, you can imagine how much money that would require, right? And it happened, it just so happened by the time we had it all ready and were ready to fill out, send back the application forms, film them out, was literally the week of a credit crunch. It's a global economic crash. So everything, all the funding was pulled. Film bodies were closing up. You know, they're closing. Hospitals, wings, and stuff, um, and the funding sources that I would worked so hard to get on on film—UK Film Council, Film London, etc. So, no, it, you you go to the website. Says, so "Sorry, we have now closed." And you're like, "Wow, what am I supposed to do now? I've worked so hard." Uh, to get the screenplay written to get all the collateral for the movie pitch ready answered all these questions and hundreds of forms or whatever it may be and now it's not there so what we did was I was working with a film producer back at that time we actually decided to make one of the scenes of the movie as an animated movie so because I was Pretty nifty at Maya, pretty nifty at 3D. I was able to um, model the characters, get, acquire the character uh, models and rigs. Uh, animate them, do all the previews, uh, all the blocking, do the lighting, the rendering, the effects, sound effects, etc. And uh, we made short movies, which uh, we entered into film festivals, put them up online, started making a blog. So what I was able to use, all the skills that I did, was using in my day job and all the, my network that I had, network of, of artists that I would work with in the day job to actually help and advise me. I, I made a short film before Digitopia called me, I filmed on 35mm film, this is pre-digital <laughs> um. And well, because I was working at a big one of the biggest global post production film houses, I was able to use all my network, I was able to use the equipment, I was able to get professional video editors to work on it, I was able to get the CG, uh, the VFX lead on Harry Potter to do the VFX on my movie. Um, I was able to then take that movie and have it submitted to film festivals, and it made the UK, uh, the British Council short film collection and it made many short film collections. So I was able to establish kind of like credentials in a way that I can do this. And I made Digitopia the animated and then put that into out into the world. Then I made I was working at a games company where I made the second issue of a digit of uh, the second short movie of Digitopia using motion capture. So we had motion capture studios where the motion capture suit where you put these glowing LED kind of like ping pong balls on your body and you wear a green suit. And we could act it all out we could act the action out so what otherwise would have taken me 14 months to animate we motion captured it in about two hours it took about two days to clean up the animation but then i had a second animated short film about in the set in the digitopia universe so i had built up enough of a backing for this i, I started a blog in which i put the movies I'd put all of the process of making the movies that It was an actual thing. Now, the two movies that I made from the earlier versions of Digitopia pretty much are not in the comic book version because it's just changed so much with the rewriting, the rewriting, the editing working with artists, but the characters are still there. So I'm hoping one day when, when I finish the graphic novel, I can, I have these visions that I'll write this really nice piece in a graphic novel of how it all started and put links to where you can watch the original uh, animated movies that I made back in the day. So, you know, having worked in film, I would say though having worked in screen, writing for screen and writing for comic books, two completely different beasts. I, I, I would butt heads so many times with like the artists, there, because I was still in a mindset of writing scenes and not writing panels. So that understanding of what goes into a panel is such, such a rich story and technique to un- understand that you don't have any of the devices that you have when, um, you're putting film together and you can't edit sequences together and you can't have a, an actor can't walk across here, pick up this, look across their shoulder and suddenly see something. No, you've got to actually do that in pictures. And if I, like you said, these pictures cost money, these pictures take up pages <laughs> and artists. And one thing I'm very pleased to say that I've done is I've paid the artists uh, their full page rates. So I paid them professional page rates I didn't negotiate on point They said to me, that's the page rate. I had all the information from all the artists. I knew what the page rates were. So when you're writing something and it spreads out from what I had written initially as what I thought were three panels is now a page and a half. Well, that's very, very real. That's a very real amount of money in terms of pay the artist, to pay the colorist, to pay the letterer to do that. Uh, because it, whether you a page has four panels or eight panels you're paying a your page rate and that's something I learned from film when I was filming in 35mm it would cost I think it was £400 pounds for a 12 foot reel of film so when you shout action and that mechanic the thing goes to the mechanical film and you see the frames go and get 24 frames a second you're going to shout cut pretty much you're going to make sure that everyone knows what they're doing most importantly you're going to know, make sure you know what you're doing you're going to know that the script is like this the direction is like this this, and it's there for a reason because when you shout action, that film reel goes. And on my first film, I had three rolls of film, I had three 12 foot rolls of film at 400 pounds each. And I think I had a fourth one, which I didn't tell anyone on the film set about. I kept it in the boot of my car because if they, if they, as soon as they find out we have four rolls of films, oh, let's do it again, let's do it again. When people know you only have a certain amount, it really, um, really hones the senses, and it's the same with comic books, is we are trying to do a 24-page story. So Digitopia is actually free issues, free 24-page stories. So we need to make sure we, we are hitting the beats. And if we're going too fast, we just happen to go too fast and we need to change it. If we're going too slow, we need to change it. But it, it really like um, those techniques, you, you have to learn. Well, you say you have to learn it, but you can learn it the hard way or you can kind of just know and understand why you're doing this. And going back to my days in film, I really understood the cost of everything and the value that each shot, each panel has now. Uh, you said Digitopia, the
2: final graphic novel is going to be uh, three issues and then uh, put together hopefully in the trade. Do you have any uh, future plans for Digitopia after that? Or is that going to be its final form?
0: So it'll probably be the final form. I mean, those who um, are paying quite close attention to Digitopia will notice I call it Digitopia 1.0, Digitopia 2.0. And Digitopia 3.0. The story that I wrote, I want to finish it. Uh, Working with lots of people in the Comics Launch Mastermind group uh, run by Tyler James, I get lots of great advice in there. One of them was finish this. You you need to finish this and you need to close this. So the way that Digitopia is currently written, it's a free story piece to make one graphic novel. I didn't have the ability to run a Kickstarter of a whole graphic novel, which is why I've done it in three issues, which actually works really nicely. So it will be a, a finished book, hopefully. in twenty. So my target was, between, <laughs> between you and me and the listeners, uh, to finish it in 2020. It's more likely now I'm going to finish it in 2021 because I don't want to rush it. I want it to be the best book it can be. So we run a Kickstarter in May for issue two. I imagine we'll deliver on that in September, and then come October, start the Kickstarter for issue three, and deliver it. I I don't know, maybe February, March, and twenty twenty one. But yeah, Digitopia is currently a free issue book, which will hopefully be combined into a graphic novel. Uh, I mean, one of the characters in Digitopia, I do have a backstory for him, uh, which I've written a synopsis for. I'm putting that on the side. I'm going to finish this book first, and then come twenty twenty one. I'll decide whether, you know, maybe the fans might demand. <laughs> Hopefully they will demand more.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was leading into my next question. I was going to ask just, uh, does it end with Digitopia 3.0 or maybe? Uh, but you're, you're leaving it. You're doing it the right way. I think you're living in the moment. You say, hey, I'm doing this right now. Uh, afterwards, if we have a spin-off, great. But you want to focus on getting it completed. Yeah, 100%. Creating Digitopia, what have been the biggest obstacles or challenges that you've encountered? Wow. I knew
0: this question might come up. Uh, (laughs) I think kind of like social media has been a huge challenge. Social media is, uh, people can say things that can really hurt you. You know, if someone says something about you per se, you brush it off, right? When someone says something about your work or your approach to marketing your book, that's tough, you know? That, that is really, really a tough thing to do, to, to take. And um, I've learned over time now that people say things on social media that they wouldn't say to you to anyone face to face Um, but until you've been on that resume again you know trying to especially it's such a difficult thing trying to run a Kickstarter and trying to promote your book because the second you mention that you might have a kickstarter running or you might want to subscribe to my mail list I don't know people just pounce on you it's like you, you know you may as well have confessed to some crime. And I don't know why people would like to hate on that because how else are you supposed to tell people if you don't actually tell people? Um, So that's been a huge challenge in trying to be so delicate to the point that you don't even want to mention that you have an email list or you have a book or your books on Amazon or your books on Kickstarter because people just, you know, there's literally a mob ready to beat you, beat you down if you if you try to say anything. So that's been a huge challenge to try to get people to to um, know about your book. And you do these marketing courses. I'm sure you've done some of them. I've done them. Listeners probably done them. And in these courses, the person will say. Marketing is a good thing. You're giving people things they want, but that's great to hear on on a in a video course that you paid for. But actually going out there and getting shot down, and you you know you may get I don't know five people who actually do subscribe to your email list you're going to get more people hating on you for suggesting that they do. I think that's been very difficult and that's probably been one of the least pleasant things. And social media apparently is supposed to be a fun thing, but not if you're a creator. It's a, it's a work thing and you know your reputation is really important um, and it, it's trying to balance not trying to balance actually trying to make progress and actually build up a fan base and people because you know if people hate people might like you but they won't leave a comment and the haters will leave loads of comments and someone else will jump on that comment saying, Yay, why is this person doing this? this is there not a group about this? It's a comic book group and I've written a comic. I'm trying to tell you about it. And all you'll get is a negative comments, even though they probably are very in a minority, but they're vocal. So you've got to develop a thick skin. You've got to be resilient and rarely have learned which social media platforms to kind of like, just be a bit coy off because, um, it's kind of like a joke about the comic book guy in The Simpsons being such a snob. And if anyone says something, he'll just shoot them down and you don't need to be shot down. Um, so that, that's probably been the, the most negative thing about trying to create your own books. It's very easy to
2: sit on the sidelines and criticize what people on the field are doing
0: yeah that sort of analogy works in any sport
2: (laughs) yeah well it works on it works in any sport and it also works just with anyone who's doing anything is open to criticism i didn't find that so much when i was uh, promoting my kickstarter aside from i think i received two emails my first kickstarter that i did and one was just the guy who said uh, well i see that you do all these conventions travel is expensive (laughs) if you didn't do these conventions you could fund this yourself and it was funny because he didn't give me an, a correct email address, but I wrote an email back to him just, that basically said, hey, I don't lose money when I go to these shows. Like, this is how I do my living. Do you understand how business works? It's easy just for people just to just to say, oh, well, you're doing this wrong. or Oh, this is wrong, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not so much they criticize the material, they criticize the approach. Well, you know, you, that person isn't doing it themselves. Um, and, you know, I've learned, I've learned that, you know, there's people who are doing stuff and people just, just want to tear people down. I don't know why, why people do that, but hey, <laughs> it's a question for them, I assume.
2: There is. It's like uh, Michael Kane and uh, Batman. Some people just want to see the world burn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as a creator, uh, what were the biggest mistakes
0: that you've made? I would say I try to over-engineer things too much. And I perhaps in the past should have known better and just let other people more you know, who who are experts, I've hired them for particular reasons. And I've learned that on, on the issue too, is, and this is what perhaps why I'm enjoying it now, even more than I was before. Cause when you get a good team, you can just, you just need to get out of their way. Uh, We've, we've done the kickoff. You've read the script. uh, We've done deep dives into the script. I'm going to get out of your way. If you have any questions, come and ask me. But before that, I would feel like I have to have an opinion on everything. And I probably held up a lot of stuff in the past, me having to have an opinion on everything. I think also, perhaps I was a bit too persistent with some people. And I do regret not spamming them, but reminding them more than two or three times to the point at which I said, look, Fahan, I'm not, I don't want it. And then kind of like, And when you see that person in real life next time, it's like, well, perhaps did I need to push so hard? We might. I'm not saying we've fallen out, but um, it just makes it a bit awkward to be told to, to do that and to have that feeling with people. I think the, one of the biggest mistakes I do, and I probably will do the same in my next Kickstarter, is just over worrying and overthinking about it to a point at which you stop enjoying it as much as you should be enjoying it. Because it's supposed to, this is a magical thing and I do enjoy it. But when you do it wrong, one of the things I've tried to do, and I think I've probably been 90%, 95% successful in, is... I am a dad first, and I do all of this stuff when the kids go to bed or before they wake up. But of course, that's that 5% why I haven't <laughs> lived up to a maximum of that. is the stuff that sticks with me. You know, no one is perfect at this and we all make mistakes. So uh, I'm sure, you know, the listeners, when they do stuff, you get things wrong. There's going to be enough people to remind you about it. (laughs) So you may as well just move on yourself. But it's easier said than done because it is in the back of your mind that you remember what you did wrong last time. Try not to do it again this time, but invariably not going to hit 100% 100 the way I, I, I envisioned that I would... Like to. Well, I'm sure that'll be a tough, uh, that'll be a tough
2: sell for my listeners because my listeners are the cream of the crop. They never make mistakes, <laughs> but no, uh, but, uh, but something that you said there from my background in sales, a rejection's bad. You know, we're taught our whole from growing up. Hey, don't get rejected. Rejection, something to fear. We get it instilled in our brains that you don't want to hear a no. And coming from sales, one of the first things they tell you is, hey, when a customer says no or when someone says no and reje- it rejects you, they're rejecting your offer, not you as a person because there's a lot of people who will take that personally. No, yeah, that's fair. I will definitely take that maximum. <laughs> All right. Uh, we've been getting very serious in this, but uh, I want to bring it up, bring up some positivity. What's been your best moment as a creator? Oh, I think,
0: you know, I can give you many of these months. <laughs> um, when I got my shipment of the print book back and I opened up that box and I, uh, it's 2019, I think it was, um, so it's the age of unboxing videos on YouTube. I'm to get all right, but nothing prepares me or could prepare anyone for that first time. You open up that box, you pull it open, you see a hundred copies of your book and you pick one up. And just that immense joy at that, it only lasts like I don't know eight seconds say the fact that you open it and you pull away this tape you open up you pull off the packaging paper and you see a hundred copies of your book and the first time you feel it in your hands and you hold it um, and just to get that feel off it and you open it up and you, you kind of look through it and you think wow that was a magical feeling. Um, I think that, the, that was perhaps equaled only with um, the time I launched on Amazon and um, I'm screen grabbing and I'm hitting uh, F5 on a web browser <laughs> to see all my rankings. And when you see yourself at number one on Amazon and you screen grab the hell out of it <laughs> and you, you wish it never ch- that ranking never changes. But that was the moment where you kind of feel vindicated all of the pain that all of the effort that you went through to hold something in your hand that you created to see it on number one to see a five-star rating on and someone took the time out to write a review they didn't just hit the five-star rating they actually wrote something about your book those you know when i when i, I remember i put it on um, one of the comic book uh, facebook groups that i'm on and uh, someone replied back with you know when i was holding my book up for the first time or opening up the box they said that feeling never gets old so i'm looking forward to the next shipment of uh, issue two and actually seeing it and holding it and i think the, the other thing that really is the amazing thing is when my kids read my book for the first time when they saw it my boy he, he took my book he went into his room. I went and checked on him about 40 minutes, 50 minutes later. I said, oh, are you, how did you find it? He's still reading it. So I, and he sat down and he read the book cover to cover, including like the the opening, the closing letters and the making off articles. And it's probably the only time like a, a, a kid, a 10-year-old, would actually read anything cover to cover. And I thought, well, that's the only book I've seen you say, Shine the door, I'm just reading this. Having them kind of... I'm not saying that, that they would feel proud of me, but... I always believed to be the dad that I wanted to be. I never wanted to tell them to do stuff. I just wanted to show, live my life. And that they would you know, kind of be the leader that I wanted them to, to be, be the example I wanted them to see without me having to say anything. And then my boy, my seven-year-old, who was six at the time, wrote a comic book in his little notebook. It's an A4 book, and he'd drawn it all out. He'd written stuff. And I kept that. Um, it, was, it was a Darth Vader story, in fact. <laughs> it's a Star Wars uh, fan fiction he just did it and again I think that's because those are the, the moments that you think to yourself no one else is going to see you no one's going to know that it's going to be a private moment you open up that box when you, someone your kid reads your book or you tries to do their own in one of my boys' homework he had to write who his heroes were and he wrote two heroes one was uh, Mo Salah who's uh, a really good footballer plays, uh, plays for Liverpool here in England so my two heroes are Mo Salah and my dad I thought, wow, I've hit the same height <laughs> um, to, to actually be be, be uh, ranked up there. So, um, yeah, those have been a great moments, actually, uh, through this journey. And and working, making really good friendships, actually meeting people who feel the same challenges you feel, who face the same challenges, who go through the same things, have the same highs, lows as you do. And I don't know about you, Bill, but I don't really meet people in my day-to-day life <laughs> who, who, who are going through all of this stuff. So creating friendships based upon not just things we have in common, but feelings and emotions that we all go through together and supporting each other through it. I just want to say, man,
2: about uh, I remember when I was growing up and, you know, you get you get that age where you're, you know, probably five to 10 years old. And, you know, your parents are your heroes. Your, your dad's your hero. He's going out. Uh, well, usually back back then it was more, you know, my dad, he went out to work. He was supporting the family, came back. I missed him when he was at work. I was lucky that I was able uh, sometimes to call him up and just uh, check in with him at his job. Close your eyes for a second and imagine that you're that age and your dad, who you admire and respect and is your hero. And he hands you a book and says, hey, I made this book. And yeah, you would go in and read
0: that front to back. And yeah, and no, that's um, it's real, real magical. It's probably been. Yeah, probably that would be the top. That Even eclipses getting number one on Amazon. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs>
2: Uh, starting out, what was the best advice that you received? So I keep referencing
0: that um, Brad Bird video. Uh, Brad Bird was someone who I really looked up to as a role model. Still obviously do. And it, it was find people who are better than you. Give your team, make them feel this is their product. They taught us about two theories, theory X and theory Y. Theory, theory X is people don't want to work and people are lazy and you've got to be on them the whole time. And the theory of why is people want to work and people want to do a good job. And your role as a leader is to empower them. So, between, it's not just good enough to get the best people who are better than you. If you don't empower them, you're just going to be in conflict. You're just going to have arguments and resentment. You'll get substandard work. So, those two things together rarely, well, you speak to the artist who I work with, and they'll tell you whether I actually do do that or not. But um, those are the type two things that I I try to do on every project I, I can. I've uh, heard the saying that if you're
2: in a room and you're the smartest person in that room, you need to change rooms. You need to go to a different room.
0: All right, uh, Farhan, uh, where can we find your Kickstarter? Uh, So Kickstarter is going live on May 30th. It's called um, Digitopia issue one and two. So it's an issue one and an issue two. So we search on Kickstarter for Digitopia issue one and two. Or if you type in Digitopia in Kickstarter, you may see one of my old Kickstarters, just click on my name and hopefully it will bring up all the Kickstarters that I'm running. If you're new to it, you can cop on, grab yourself issue one and issue two. If you're already on board with issue one, you can grab yourself issue two. One of the exciting rewards we have is a you and the book reward. So we've got some panels, some characters that we're reserving for backers likenesses. So if the listeners want to actually be in a comic book <laughs> as as well as reading one. I've got several backer award likenesses. Yeah. So if you want to be drawn your likeness inside a
2: comic book, go hit them up. Go check out those reward tiers. Farhan, where else can we
0: find you in cyberspace? So I'm at FarhanQ underscore UK on Twitter and on Instagram. If you look for Digitopia web comic to graphic novel on Facebook is my Facebook page. Uh, The best thing is just come to my blog, comic.digitopiafilm.com. Uh, Come and read. I put the first 16 pages up for free. Below each page is a really in-depth making of articles and there's a sign up sheet to my mailing list. So just head over to comic.digitopiafilm.com.
2: All right. Sounds great. Farhan, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure
2: talking with you. If you know a creator that makes comic books or any other media and think they'd be a good fit for the show drop us a line at under mask show at gmail.com.
1: You've been listening to the under the mask podcast with Bill Colomb. Welcome to the family. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you found the right podcast for you. Thanks for listening, and make sure to like or leave a review. And we'd appreciate it if you'd tell a friend or two. To reach out, visit us at underthemaskpodcast.com. This has been a presentation of Why Comics. Till next time, this is the Under the Mask Podcast. Signing off.